What's your entrance into heaven going to be like? Wouldn't you like to have a glorious entrance? You can. Peter says you can. You have the faith. You have everything you need to live a life of godliness. You have the power of God behind that. And you have all those magnificent promises. have the same kind of faith that Peter had. Well now in case you might still be thinking, oh no, not me. Peter carries on in much the same vein. He says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. That's quite a mouthful. The way it's put is a bit awkward in our English translation. So before we go anywhere with it, let me help you to put it a bit more simply. Jesus' divine power. That's the power that made everything out of nothing. His divine power has given to us, given to you, all things, absolutely everything, all things that pertain to life and godliness, absolutely everything you need to live a godly life. How come? Well, through the knowledge of him who called you. In other words, it goes along with knowing Jesus. It goes with being saved. Have you got that? By his divine power, Jesus has given you everything you need to live a godly life. And remember, there's more here. He has called us to, it should be to rather than by, which it is in some translations. He has called us to his own glory and excellence. In other words, he has called us to be like him in every way. That's what that means. He has called you so that you can be just as attractive, lovely, beautiful, desirable in every way as he himself is. That's the standard. That's the kind of godliness he has called you to and equipped you for. Imagine you. Now you're not quite there yet, are you? You haven't made it. But he has given you loads of promises the promise of the Holy Spirit, the promise that he will always be with you, the promise of heaven. How long have you got? We can't go through all of the promises he's given to you. Loads of promises. The Bible is full of them. Great and precious promises. He has given you loads of promises that guarantee that you will become a partaker of the divine nature. You're not there yet, but you're going to be like Jesus one day. 
That's a promise. But you say, what about my sinning? That sounds great. It's what I want, but I still have all these old selfish desires and sinful ways that keep pulling me down. But that's no excuse, says Peter. He says, you have escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. It can't stop this happening. You don't have to go along with those old ways. Jesus has set you free from them. Yes, imagine you. You have got what it takes to be a godly man or woman, just like Jesus. You have it all, and the power of God is behind it, and the promises of God guarantee it will happen, and nothing can stop it. Well, how are you doing? How are you coming along at being like Jesus? Not so good? Hmm? Well, you do have the kind of faith that can do anything. And you have everything that it takes to live a godly life. So here is what you must do. For this very reason, verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. What that is, is the language of a prescription or a recipe. It's Peter's recipe for a godly life. It's a list of ingredients. They all need to be added, and they all need to be mixed. And they all need to be added in liberal quantities. This is my kind of a recipe. There's no careful measurement here. You just chuck in the ingredients by the bucketful, and the more the better. If these qualities are yours and increasing, Peter says in verse 8, start with the faith you have been given. Trust God, take him at his word, live like you do. Now, people get confused about what faith is, but I think it's simple, really. God speaks to us through his word. You accept it. You act on it. That's faith. There are people who think that trusting God for salvation is enough. They'll quote the verse, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And they take that to mean, believe that Jesus died for you. But that's only a bit of it. You've got to believe everything Jesus says and live like you do. That's what believing on Jesus is. It's no good saying you believe when there's something God says you must do and you're refusing to do it. That's not faith. And do you see, too, how Peter is assuming here that you already have faith? He says, to your faith add. Well, that's, of course, because he's already told you that you have the same kind of faith he had. Faith is the start. It has to be where you start, because without faith, there is nothing. If you don't have faith, you're not a Christian at all. But the faith you have, even though it's the same kind of faith Peter had, has to be built on. You've got to add to it. Virtue is the next ingredient in Peter's recipe for godliness. It's the first thing to be added. The word virtue is maybe a bit misleading because the word it translates can mean moral goodness, 
But I don't think it does here because that's going to come later in the list when Peter says to be self-controlled and, and godly. But it can also mean energy or power. So I think what Peter is saying here is you have faith. Now add a bit of energy to it. A bit of enthusiasm. Be decisive and resolute in living for the Lord. Be alert. Seize the opportunities that come your way. Be brave in your witness. Don't be a dull, lukewarm, lethargic Christian. Don't be a pew potato. You know the kind, don't you? They're like bored teenagers. You can just picture them. And they're saying things like, Oh, what can I do? There are no opportunities. I'm tired. I'm fed up. There are a lot of Christians like that. If your life is dull, it's not God's fault. And it's not that there are no opportunities. There are opportunities all around you. There are opportunities to witness. There are opportunities to serve in all kinds of ways. There are risks to take and adventures to go on. So what Peter is saying here is give yourself a push. If you're bored in your Christian life, get up and do something. There's a world of need and opportunity. And you know, I fear we miss it because we just get locked into our own comfortable wee spheres and we can't see outside them. So take God at his word. Use that faith and get out there and do things that are different. Take some risks. He will supply your need. He has said he will. Set aside the fears and be bold with confidence in him. To your faith add virtue or energy. And next on Peter's list is knowledge. Misdirected energy is possibly more dangerous than no energy at all. And there's an awful lot of misdirected energy about in the Christian world. There are Christians who are doing plenty, but they're doing the wrong things. And it leads to wasted resources. It leads to people getting into roles they shouldn't be in. It leads to people getting in the way of what God's doing. It leads to structures, organizations being built up and they end up getting in the way. It leads to immature Christians following other people like that into wrong teaching and bad practice. It leads to Christians doing things in the name of Jesus that are just not glorifying to God. How does it come about? Well, I suppose it happens because people see needs and opportunities and in their enthusiasm they dream up ideas and schemes and their intentions are good and their motives are good. But in their enthusiasm, instead of doing things God's way, they set out to do them any way that they think will work. Pull in ideas from the business world or the world of advertising or psychology. They do things that might have worked at other times and in other places, but they're not right for here and now. Just watch out. Don't get caught up in that way of going. God's work, God's way, in God's time. That's how it has to be. Well, how do you avoid getting caught up in those wrong ways of going? And the answer is you add knowledge to your enthusiasm and your faith. Add general knowledge. 
Look at the world around you. Know what the needs are. Know what the opportunities are that are available to you. But more important than that, add knowledge of God's Word. Study your Bible. Put some energy into that and learn some wisdom from it. Christians are constant learners. We've got to be constantly learning. We always want to know more, or we should. Don't care how long you've been walking the Christian path. There are deeper truths still to be understood, and there always will be. And there's a level of maturity to be reached that you haven't reached yet. Writer to the Hebrews lamented the fact that his readers weren't learners and that they hadn't matured. In Hebrews 5, he says to them, By this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the first principles of God's word. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. A growth in the Christian life, it's a, it's a progressive thing. You reach a level and that sets you up to go to the next level. And that in turn makes you ready for the next. And so it goes. But you'll never reach those higher levels of maturity as a Christian if you don't learn and put into practice the lessons that are coming to you now. So in that way, putting into practice what you learn as you go, you train your senses and you discipline your mind and then you're ready to receive the deeper truths that will take you further. So anyway, add knowledge and keep adding knowledge. Self-control comes next. It's called temperance in some translations. But it's not just abstinence from alcohol and drugs and the like. This is the quality of character that's also mentioned in Galatians 5. You know that passage about the fruit of the Spirit? It's all about being the kind of person who controls his or her appetites and desires. Now, most people these days aren't too hot on that, especially younger people. They can't say no to themselves. They go along with their feelings. And if that's you, I want to say to you, you'll never be a useful Christian. A self-controlled person is a person who has a firm grip on himself, a person who is not self-indulgent, a person who knows when to enjoy good things but doesn't crave them, a person who knows when to say no thank you, a person who's not easily swayed or tempted, a person who controls his tongue, a person who disciplines his mind, a person who has energy and knowledge but exercises it with control and wisdom. He'll not be an opinionated person because he'll not be taken over by that compulsion that most of us have to share everything we know. Self-control starts when you put things into perspective. It depends on having a right understanding of the word. 1 Corinthians 7, 29. 
I say this, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on even those who have wives should be as though they had none, those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use this world as not misusing it, for the form of this world is passing away. All of these things that we have in the world, they're only temporary. They're passing away. And once you get that perspective, that's when self-control starts to become possible. The main reason we lack self-control is that we haven't ever really got that. We think that certain things are important when they're not. And we think that our appetites have to be satisfied and that the things we crave are important. And we think that our ambitions are important. Self-control starts by putting things in that perspective, and then it has to be developed with practice. You have to practice self-denial if you want to be good at it. You know, you don't have to have something just because you can. You remember we heard last week about Hudson Taylor, how he, as a young man, believed that God was calling him to go to, to China when he heard about the millions of people there who were lost and, uh, and without Christ. And when he was a young man, when he was a medical student, he deliberately denied himself things just for the practice. He went without food. He went without sleep. He went without comfort, even though he could have had those things. And the reason he did that was to prepare himself to go to China where he knew he would probably have to go without at times. Self-control is something you've got to practice to be good at it. And there is benefit in saying no to ourselves, even though we don't have to. Next up on Peter's list is perseverance or stickability. It's about adding those ingredients we've mentioned already and then doggedly exercising them right to the end, no matter what. It's about being a person who's not driven by circumstances and appearances, not put off by the appearance of hardship or even by persecution, not put off by defeat or by suffering, or not put off when God seems to withdraw his presence or when God's promises seem to be failing. Confident in the truth and holding on to it no matter what. That's what perseverance is. Now, every Christian comes through times of trial, times when our faith is put to the test. And a lot, when they are, give up or question what they believe. I've seen too many very promising Christians turn back when times got hard. I've seen others who grew dull and lifeless and their usefulness was diminished because they lacked perseverance. Bad things happen to us and most of the time we don't understand why they should be happening as they are. But God in his word calls us to trust him and to persevere. Remember the story of Job, the example we always bring up when we talk about this. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him in all the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? 
You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Oh, God. Job's trusting you, but sure, everything's easy for him. Everything's going his way. You have blessed him with so many things. It's easy for him to trust you. Take all that away. And let's see if he trusts you when there's nothing. You trust and fear God when things are going well. Will you trust him for nothing? Perseverance. Godliness now. And the word Peter here uses means well devout, if you take it literally. The idea is of strong commitment or devotion to God. It's really honouring the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Or you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Godliness the word that Peter uses here means putting God first in everything. It means giving yourself as a living sacrifice. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, Paul says in Romans 12. And the question is, is that what you have done with your life? Is your body no longer yours? Does it now belong to God completely to do his will and to be used for his pleasure and not for your pleasure? For example, of all the things that you have done, even just today so far, how much of what you have done has been for your pleasure? How much of it was done to further your own ambitions or desires or ends? And how much was done purely and simply because you wanted to please the Lord? And if your answer is anything less than 100%, then you haven't presented your body as a living sacrifice. Everything done for Jesus. That's godliness. And godliness shows itself in total submission and simple obedience and in worship and living in fellowship with God, and always thinking about the Lord. He's always there at the front of your mind, finding your happiness in the Lord. What is it that makes you most happy? Is it the Lord or something else? And it also shows itself in growing in Christ-likeness. Beauty of Jesus, holiness, will be seen in you more and more as time goes by. Wonder when people look at you, what they see. How would they describe you? How do they remember you after you've left? How do you want to be remembered by people when you move on from them? By your work colleagues, and by your children, and your partners, and by your church. Will they remember you? Will the first thing that comes to mind be, yeah, that was a godly person. It's hard to know how others perceive us, of course, but, I mean, for me, I suppose, through my life I've worn lots of different hats, and I don't know how other people see me. Some see me as the psychiatrist, some the counsellor, some the teacher, some the pastor, some the father, some the granddad. 
I don't really want any of that to be how people think of me. I would really like to be remembered as a man of God. But the thing is, if I'm honest, I've probably put more work into being some of those other things than I've put into godliness. What image does your effort go into? Brotherly kindness is that kind of love that Christians have for one another as brothers and sisters. It's about affection, feeling. It's about a deep bond or sense of oneness like brothers have for each other. That's how it ought to be. It's said that the church is the only army that shoots its wounded. Actually, in my experience and my years in counselling, I would say that's probably not true. We don't shoot our wounded, we torture them, and then we leave them to die a slow, miserable, lonely death. There's not much brotherly kindness about that. We think we love each other with brotherly kindness until somebody someday does something that we don't agree with, and that's often when we show our true colours. We start to turn on each other. And again, it's been my experience that Christians really don't make good friends. People out there in the world seem to be better at being friends than Christians do. I'm not sure why it is. Maybe we're just too busy being Christians to be good friends. I don't know. And Christians are critical of one another. And often they, they don't help. They talk about helping, but when it comes to it, they don't really do it. And Christians won't stand up for you when you make a mess of things. Unsaved people seem to be better at that. And as a result, I've met a lot of Christians who are, are lonely. I wonder, have you realized that God is not about saving individuals? We, we all think, we're inclined to think of our faith in an individual way. God saved me. God is working in my life. God is blessing me. But God is not about saving individuals. He's preparing a bride for Jesus. He's redeeming people from every nation and every level of society, and he's bringing them all together as one. Or if you look at it another way, God is building a family. He's the daddy, and we're all brothers and sisters. Or, or look at it like this. We're all on the same journey, fighting the same battle against the same enemy. We've all been called and chosen by the same Father, and we're all destined for the same place. We're all working on the same job, and we're all serving the same Master. And if only we could catch a vision of that, I think we would be moved with more affection toward one another. God tells us clearly how that affection should be expressed. All of those one another passages, there has to be brotherly kindness. Because the way God has set things up, the way things are, the reality is that we need one another. We need to give to one another and we need to receive from one another if we're going to be godly people. And last on Peter's list, this is the pinnacle, this is the best. If Peter's recipe was a recipe for a cake, this would be the cherry on the top. Love. 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. Patient and kind, never jealous or envious or boastful or proud or haughty or selfish or rude. 
Love does not seek its own, but it hopes all things, it endures all things, it believes all things, always sees the best in the other person. Love puts the other person first, no matter what it costs. And Jesus said, by this all men, by love, your love for one another, all men will know that you're my disciples. And they said of the early Christians, see how they love one another. And the Apostle John said, little children love one another. Christians should be the most loving people. Their lives should just ooze love. And yet so many are harsh and bitter and critical, and that's not biblical Christianity. Even when we have to say hard things to one another, unpalatable truths, they have to be spoken in love. Now, I, I hate it when people say, I've got something to say to you, but I'm saying it in love, brother. If you usually know you're going to get walloped. The truth has to be said with real love. If you don't love, don't speak. If you have something hard to say, and you're not speaking in love, you're better not to say it. And if you are speaking in love, it's going to hurt you as much to say it as it hurts the other person to hear it. So add love, the final and the best ingredient. Add it to your energy. Don't trample others in your enthusiasm. Add it to your knowledge. Don't despise those who have less knowledge than you. Add it to your self-control. Don't become critical and tight-fisted. Recently, talking to a group of friends, there's an interesting question came up. Why is it that so many Christians, people after they become Christians, tend through time to turn into hard, austere, critical people? Well, I can think of one reason. They add knowledge and energy and self-control, but they forget to add love. When love goes out, God is not pleased with us. So there you are, a recipe for godliness. A couple more things to say. First of all, don't, don't be passive about this. Don't let things drift. Don't think it's just going to happen. Peter says, give all diligence to add to your faith. And remember too, these are not optional extras. You can't say, I, I don't want to be a hero. I'll settle for just being an ordinary dull Christian. That's not an option. Peter says, common decency prevents you thinking that way. In verse 9, he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. In other words, think of what God has done for you in Christ. Don't you want to do all you can for him? Don't you want to be the best that you can be? Think where your sin was leading you, where you were headed. Think about how much God hates sin, how abhorrent it is to him. And yet he saved you. Don't you want to strive to be free of sin? Don't you want to strive to be like him? So be diligent. Give it your best effort. 
And Peter goes on, if these things are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these things is short-sighted, so short-sighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these things, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What's he saying there? He's saying if these qualities, the things in this list, are bubbling over in you and bouncing out of you in every direction, if they are yours in increasing measure, then you won't be a useless Christian. You'll be productive, you'll be useful, you'll have something to show for your life, you will be a strong, victorious Christian. In this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Back in the days of sailing ships, a ship might set off on a long and dangerous journey, maybe to go halfway around the world. Sailors would say goodbye to their loved ones. Nobody knew when they would be back. It could be months, it could be years. Nobody knew if they would ever be back. But when they did return to their home port, wow, what a day that was. As soon as the ship appeared on the horizon, word would go around the town and loved ones would put on their best clothes and they'd all line up on the dockside and there'd be lots of flag waving so they could see them in the distance and lots of shouting and cheering. And then after the ship docks, there'd be that big celebration and a big party. The heroes have returned. What a day that must have been. Now, it doesn't really come out in our translations, but that's the kind of picture Peter had in mind when he penned these words. In this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What's your entrance into heaven going to be like? You know, I think some of us would be satisfied just to get there. And I think if we're honest, most of us imagine ourselves struggling to make land, limping into port, battered by the storms, heads hanging low in shame, hoping nobody notices, and we're content with that. Wouldn't you like to have a glorious entrance? You can. Peter says you can. You have the faith. You have everything you need to live a life of godliness. You have the power of God behind that. And you have all those magnificent promises. So get to work. Supplement your faith with virtue. And virtue with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. And what a day it will be. The day you enter heaven. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for holding before us the possibilities. We pray that your word would stir us up to add to that faith that you have given to us, to add some energy to it, and all the other things in that list. And oh, how we look forward to that day when we will sail into glory 
heads held high, not because of our goodness, but because you have graciously enabled us to live godly lives for you.